Um, what I wanted to do tonight is uh, talk about apologetics. I don't know if you know that term apologetics. It doesn't mean to apologize for your faith. It means quite the reverse, actually. Um, it comes from a little verse in First Peter where Peter says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have, a reasoned argument for the hope you have. And I think we as Christians need to become more and more aware of the great arguments there are for the Christian faith. It's lovely to be here tonight and to worship God and all of that kind of thing, but how do we convey our love for Jesus Christ to friends at the minute who have no idea about church, have no desire to come to church, and are being told by our media that there is no God, that there can't be a God, that science has buried God, as one um, author put it? Um, How do I begin to reach them? And apologetics is one way of doing that. Always be ready to give a reason, a logical defense for the hope that you have. And I think there is an awful lot that we can do as Christians, that we can say as Christians to show the logical nature of the Christian faith. And what I want to do tonight is um, give you a a message which has three C's in it so that it's easy to to remember. Uh, Creation, conscience, and Christ. These are three pointers to the fact that the gospel is true, that the gospel is logical, that you don't have to leave your brain at the door to be a Christian. In fact, it's the most intellectually satisfying thing to be a Christian. Um, And these three points of creation, conscience, and Christ hopefully build up a progressive case that will at least help people Um, think about the logic of Christianity. So, I want to challenge you about that, that the faith, Christian faith is logical. If you're not a Christian here tonight, thank you so much for being here, and I want you to start thinking about these things, and there are deeper books out there as well that can uncover each of these sections, Creation, Conscience, and Christ. I've only got about 20 minutes to share just the beginnings of these issues with you. So, I want to to challenge you if you're not a Christian, and I, I want to give you a resource if you are a Christian to say, well, this is a message that I can pass on to a friend, creation, conscience, Christ. Here are three things that help me believe that Christianity is totally rational, it is reasonable, and you need to think about it in your life, okay? So, creation, conscience, Christ. First of all, we have creation, which is on the screen here. Um, Richard Dawkins wrote a book, of course, called The God Delusion, uh, where he said that science is proving that there is no God. We look at the universe, the universe does not care that we exist, Um, And there was a famous French uh, geneticist years ago called Louis Pasteur who said, a little bit of science makes you an atheist. A lot of science makes you a believer. So the further you push into science, the more you see the subtleties of science, the incredible nature of life and reality, the more likely you are to believe in God. If you have a little bit of science... It could lead you to say, why are we here in this universe? We're just a little rock, you know, third rock from the sun. What's the point of our existence? But actually, the more we investigate science, the more it points to a designer. Why do I say that? There was a book written by a non-Christian recently, a guy called Paul Davis, who was a physicist, and it was a book called Just Six Numbers. And he talks basically about, if you could imagine, a giant universe-making machine, And there are six dials on this machine, each representing one of six forces that are necessary for life to even exist in our universe, let alone conscious, intelligent life like we have here tonight. We are conscious and intelligent, I'm sure you realize on a Sunday night. Um, And each of these dials, which represent one is the force of electromagnetism, one is the force of gravity, and so on, you don't need to understand each of these forces. I'm rubbish at physics, to be honest, but each of these forces have to be precisely located where they are for life to even exist. 
So if you took one of these six dials and moved it a tiny bit to the left or a tiny bit to the right, life could not exist. The universe would fold in on itself or something like that. So when you think about that, scientists call this the fine-tuning of the universe. That speaks of there could be a designer. Maybe God has designed the universe in a way to get us to explore further and say, how could this be? In fact, when, when the whole Big Bang idea came out in the mid-1900s, one of the great atheistic scientists, Sir Fred Hoyle, says, I can't stand the idea of the Big Bang leading to this, this thing called life on planet Earth. I can't stand it. All the scientists must have been reading the book of Genesis. Because the Big Bang leading to a coalescence of stars and planets revolving around the planet, planets revolving around the sun, and then our Earth being exactly the right distance from the sun, any closer and we would burn up, any further away and we'd be too cold. The axis of our planet has to be just right for life to exist. The moon has to be exactly where it is for our tides not to overwhelm us. Life in our world hangs on an absolute knife edge. And that doesn't prove that there's a God, but it's at least consistent with there being a God. Um, the Christian worldview makes sense when you see that life hangs on a knife edge, and God's created it like this so that we would investigate, why is life so fine-tuned? Why are we just the right distance from the sun? So, you have these six dials, fine-tuning of the universe, we're just the right distance from the sun, all that kind of stuff. That's on the massive level of the universe. Then on the, the microscopic level of the universe, we have this thing called DNA. And Bill Gates, who's the head of Microsoft Corporation, Bill Gates said, if you want to understand DNA then think of digital technology. That's what our DNA is like. In fact, there are a whole series of computer programmers in the States and in the Western world generally who are looking at how DNA does its thing so that they can write better computer programs because the software inside you called DNA is more advanced than the computer programs that we're developing right now. Computer designers are looking at DNA to say, how does it do its thing? And you think how old DNA is. The interesting thing is when, when Charles Darwin first developed his theory of evolution, he, he said, he, he thought of, of a cell, you know, the, the smallest unit of life. He thought a cell was just a, a little blob, that there was nothing much to it. We have discovered in the 150 years since Darwin wrote his Origin of Species book that inside that tiny cell, it's actually a chemical factory. It is more complex than we can imagine. And it leads to this thing called DNA, and DNA is full of information. DNA dictates what color hair you have, um, your eyes, where your heart is. All of that kind of stuff is dictated by this thing called DNA. You have billions of strands of this DNA in your body, and every living thing has DNA in it, dictating, pumping information into that living system to decide what that living system is going to be. And of course, um, mathematicians like John Lennox are saying um, information must precede matter. So there must be an information giver for DNA to even exist. Are you following the rationale here? And you end up saying, well, the atheist viewpoint of life is that complete random chance, nothingness led way down the line to you and me. Nothingness led to Einstein with his brain, with his capacity, with his search for meaning, with his intellect as a human being. How can you believe that nothingness, complete blind chance, led to Einstein? It just seems impossible. Now, that idea of non-mind leading to mind, and the fact that that seems impossible, so there must be a designer feeding information in so that we become who we are, Again, that doesn't prove that there's a God, 
but it fits very much with the Christian worldview, doesn't it? And in fact, John chapter 1 opens with the verse, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word, and the whole idea behind the Word is information. Jesus is the one who feeds information into every living being. You live and move and have your being because Jesus said so. You're breathing right now because Jesus allows you to breathe. And the Bible says that Jesus upholds everything by his mighty word. He's a bigger God than you can possibly imagine. Every atom in the universe is suspended by him. And this thing called DNA is basically, it's Jesus' signature. And in fact, probably the leading scientist in the world, a man called Dr. Francis Collins, who was appointed by President Clinton to be head of the Human Genome Project to map the human genome. Dr. Francis Collins is a Christian. And the book that he wrote is called The Language of God. And he says that if you really, really studied DNA, and he is the number one expert on DNA, he says, you would see the signature of God in every bit of it. Uh, we just do these things instinctively. The ability to speak and create language is utter genius. And it separates us from the whole animal kingdom, of course. We are different to the animal kingdom because we can speak, we can reason. And if you understood how complex a process it is to create one word from this fabulous thing called a brain, you would start to say, maybe life isn't quite so random. Maybe there is a God behind it all who created this thing called a brain. And in fact, Sir John Polkinghorne, who was a, a physics teacher in Cambridge and left his physics to become an Anglican priest because he became a Christian through his physics, Sir John Polkinghorne said, you know, a, a man will look through a telescope to marvel at the heavens but what he doesn't realize is the thing that is looking through the telescope at the heavens is more marvelous than anything else in the universe. The human brain is the most marvelous, sophisticated machine in the universe, and you've got one. Again, that doesn't prove God, but it fits very nicely with a theistic worldview, a view that says the Christianity is true, and there is a God, and therefore there is a meaning to life, and I need to discover what that meaning is. So I could spend all night on this, sorry for spending so long on that, but that's, that's the creation piece and C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not just because I see the sun, but because through the sun I see everything else. And he's saying Christianity, the Christian worldview, helps me understand the totality of reality in a way that no other worldview would help me understand. And I look at creation, I look at this universe and say, that's got the fingerprints of God all over it. I look at my brain, it's got the fingerprints of God. My search for meaning, it's got the fingerprints of God. My wish for relationship, it's got the fingerprints of God. My desire to live forever, I want to live forever. That's got the fingerprints of God all over it. So, creation is the first C. Second C is conscience. These are indicators that lead towards asking the question, could there possibly be a God? And the second idea is, is conscience. You and I are moral beings. We feel good when we do good, and we feel bad when we do bad. And that's true of every culture and every people group around the globe. We feel good when we do good, we feel bad when we do bad. That doesn't help us in any way. It just is. I feel good when I do good, I feel bad when I do bad. Mark Twain, um, the author, said, human beings are the only animals who can blush and the only ones who need to, you know? Gorillas don't sit around in a corner thinking, did I do right today or did I do wrong? We think about this all the time. 
Good and evil. Why is there such a thing as good and evil? Hollywood movies are built on this. You cheer for the good guy. You want evil to be destroyed. Why do you feel like that? Why is there such a thing as a thirst for justice? It's a powerful thing. Young people who come from completely non-Christian families, a lot of them have a massive thirst for justice and wish they could change the whole economic and political system so that we could get justice. Peace. We long for peace. John Lennon did. Give peace a chance. He was just looking in the wrong places. Why do we long for these things? Peace, justice. Is it perhaps because we were made by somebody who is moral, who is holy, 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 who is the God of all justice? And if you take that thought to its logical conclusion, then all of us are heading, all of us moral beings are heading for a final moral judgment. Hebrew says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. I will stand in front of God one day and give an account for how I've lived my life. Now, that should not seem strange to us. It might seem scary to us, but it shouldn't seem strange to us. We get used to justice in the world all the time, and if you do wrong, you go in front of a court, and somebody makes a judgment on you. Why do we think like that? Why does life work like that? It is a shadow, a reflection of the fact that ultimately there will be a day of justice. On what basis will you and I be judged? And that's the key that opens the door to the gospel of Jesus Christ. On what basis will I be judged? Um, will I be judged on the basis of being a good guy? Of being better than my neighbor? What's, what's the criteria for passing the judgment of God? And the scary message of the Bible is that the, the criteria is utter perfection. If I'm going to be ready for heaven, which is a perfect place, I need to be absolutely a thousand percent perfect. And I've got no chance. I've got no chance. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's every single one of us. And we, we feel it in our souls. I don't like my sin being raised towards me, but I can't deny that it's there every moment of every day. I'm a sinner. And I don't know if you ever watch pole vault competitions. Um, when somebody's trying to pole vault, they never measure how far the guy fell short of jumping over the bar. He just either fell short or he didn't. So whether you're a pretty good guy, much better than the guys shooting drugs downtown or prisoners in South America tonight, whether you're better than them or not is completely irrelevant. The bar is set at the glory of God, and you and I fall way short or even further short. In fact, if we understand the Bible properly, if you have somebody like Hitler, and there's the bar of God, Hitler's down here. Nowhere near. Mother Teresa, one of the better people who lived, is probably up about there. And there's the glory of God. We're moral beings, we have a conscience, and we're going to be heading to a judgment. What are we going to do about it? Leads us on to the third C, Christ. We're probably so familiar with the name of Jesus Christ, we, don't, we forget how incredible a story it is. Here is a guy who died when he was 33 years old. He was the son of a carpenter, a working-class guy. He never left his own country, never left Israel, never wrote a book. Lots of books written about him, but he never wrote a book. And he died as a criminal under the, the, the Roman Empire. Yet today, 2,000 years after he died, around 2 billion people woke up this morning to worship him as God. How on earth did that happen? How on earth did that happen? And of course, that whole story starts with predictions that there would be a, a Messiah to come. The whole Old Testament's full of them. 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah says that he will be crucified. He calls him a man of sorrows. He would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. 700 years before he's born, 
Isaiah 9 says that he would be raised in Galilee, from Galilee of the nations, the light of God will shine on the nation. We're told that he would be born of a virgin. We're told that he would be a child of Abraham. And Matthew's gospel begins with Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. It's his whole family tree. So when you read about Abraham and all his family line, and then David and all the kings of Israel and all their family line leading to Jesus the Christ, you realize that Jesus coming had hundreds of years of preparation. This is the family line that would lead to Messiah. And that's why everybody was looking around for a Messiah when Jesus was born, but he seemed a very unlikely one. They were looking for a Messiah to overthrow the Roman Empire and lead Israel to glory. Instead, Messiah was raised in a very obscure town called Nazareth. He only preached publicly for three years, and then he was crucified, which was just horrendous. I mean, crucifixion was such a disgusting thing. It was the Christian's hardest job to convince people that this is what God did for you, that he hung naked on a cross. In fact, there was a piece of graffiti discovered in, I think it was Corinth, um, where a guy is, has put a picture of a donkey's head hanging from a cross. And it says underneath, Alexamenos, who must have been a Corinthian boy, Alexamenos worships his God. What an idiot to worship a God who died on a cross. But if you turn that on its head and you ask the question of questions, if that person hanging on the cross really was the Son of God, as all the prophets said he was, and if that person hanging naked on a cross, screaming from the torture of the nails and crying out to God for mercy and release and deliverance, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If that person truly is the God who created the galaxies, and yet he loved you enough to set aside the worship of angels and the freedom of being an eternal spirit who created the whole thing, to become a man, to take on flesh and bone, become a peasant in Galilee, and ultimately a, a convicted criminal hanging on a cross, if he did that to carry your sins, then I put it to you that that's the most important thing that's ever happened to any of our lives. This is where life is found. This is where the meaning of life. And this person who hung on the cross said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's been commented tonight. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. I am life. I am the power that breathes life into the whole of creation. And I'm hanging on a cross to die for you because you're a sinner and you need to experience my love and grace to know the Father who sent me. Jesus Christ, he's an enigma. And yet the people who really grabbed a hold of him, his truth, his 12 disciples, who claim that they saw him risen from the dead, and Christianity would never have started if he hadn't been risen from the dead, you cannot go around telling the world that a crucified criminal is the Son of God. I mean, crucifixion was disgusting. But a crucified, resurrected Savior, that's another thing entirely. And these men saw Jesus risen from the dead. In fact, over 500 people saw him risen from the dead, and then they started to preach. And they were so committed to this person of Jesus Christ who had blessed them with his miracles, with his teaching. They had seen him die for them and rise again from the dead. They gave their lives to spread this message across the globe. Eleven out of the twelve of Jesus' disciples were martyred for their faith. They shed their blood because they thought that Jesus was worth more than their very life. And he is. He's the reason behind life, the reason behind existence, the reason why you exist, why you're living and breathing today. And he's also the God and Savior who loves you.
to the point of death on a cross. And he calls you to give up on that version of life where you are at the center and you are doing exactly what your dreams will lead you to do. And he says, give all that up. Die to all of that. Be crucified to all of that. And come and follow me with everything you've got. If any man, woman, boy, or girl would become my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up the cross daily, and follow me. What a, an offer. What a request from the King of Kings. But he's only, doing, he's only asking us to do what he himself has done for us. He gave his life for me, so I'll give my life for him. So, that, I think, is the challenge. Creation, fine-tuned. We're extraordinary beings made in the image of an extraordinary God who is also a lawgiver, made us to know good and evil and realize that we are sinners in His sight facing judgment. And so, we look to Jesus Christ who bore our sins in His body on a tree, rose again from the dead, and is the reason behind existence. That's Christianity. Yes, you need to have faith to believe, but faith that's based on reason. There is powerful reason to give your life to Jesus Christ tonight. What else are you going to live for? It seems to me that people who live for themselves tend to be the most miserable. People who live for Jesus tend to be the most together and happy. And I sit by people's deathbeds all the time. It's part of my job. I see Christians die and non-Christians die. And the difference between the two is incredible. So, that's all I have to say. But may God bless you and make you think, I stand on the solid ground of faith and I'm ready to share this faith, creation, conscience, Christ, with friends who need to know the Lord. Do you want me to pray or should we move on? Let me just, let's just pray now and then we'll move on with the evening. Father, we thank you for um, the faith that you have brought us into. Thank you that it's, it's, it's not airy-fairy faith. It's not faith devoid of reason. It is faith built on reason. Thank you that you have left us your word, that Jesus came in history, that secular writers like Tacitus wrote, Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We know he was crucified. History tells us he was crucified. And then we have the witness of these apostles who gave their lives because they said he was, he was risen from the dead. And thank you, Father, for the proof over the last 2,000 years, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ because He is alive and because the Holy Spirit speaks through us and draws people to this worldwide family of God. Thank you that Christianity is still the fastest-growing people movement on the planet. So, Father, help us to realize that we don't need to throw out our brains to believe in Jesus. We just need to bow our knees. Help us to do that. Help those of us that are convinced that this is true to live like it's true, to live with passion in our hearts, not just to know Christ ourselves, but to make Him known to friends and family all around so that this country is re-evangelized, that the name of Jesus is shone out again like never before. Help us with this, we pray, and help us to be confident that we have reason for our faith in Jesus' name. Amen.